All right, back on the Young Turks. A little bit of breaking news on the Jeffrey Epstein case. FBI has raided what has been nicknamed Pedophile Island. That is the island that Jeffrey Epstein owned within the US Virgin Islands. And about a dozen FBI agents in speedboats came out of the island and are now thoroughly searching it for evidence. They likely obviously would have done that anyway if he was alive because they're looking for evidence of his crimes. I'm surprised they didn't do it earlier. But even after he's passed away, obviously there are other people implicated in his crimes. So they went to go collect information there. So let's see if they come up with anything there and could be very, very interesting. All right, so now let's go on to our guests. Joining me now is Lindsay Ellison. She's a media writer for The Wrap. And she's written an article about Breitbart and how they're not doing so well. So of course, I'd love to talk to her about that. Lindsay, welcome to the Young Turks. Hey, although funny enough, I actually have mixed feelings about this phenomenon. So I want to talk to you about digital media in general. But you, you let's start with the article you wrote about Breitbart. So how much trouble are they in? In the piece that I wrote, we found out that their traffic declined 72% since January of 2017. So that was around the inauguration. They had great traffic numbers and it has declined 72% until June, which is the month that we have the most recent numbers for. That's devastating. Um, but uh, they have a second issue as well, which is uh, revenue specifically coming from advertising. Uh, so can you tell us more about that? Yeah, they had a huge advertiser boycott in 2017. A lot of people remember it as being pretty catastrophic for Breitbart overall. A lot of places have seen these ad revenue boycotts. Fox News sees them all the time. Sleeping Giants is really good at getting people involved and kind of pointing out, you know, these people are advertising on your platform and this is what they have to say or, you know, letting people know where their advertising is actually showing up. Um, So they saw a 90% loss of advertising in May of 2017, which was just three months into their boycott. So Lindsay, there's a couple of different phenomena here, but let's first address the thing that I think if you're a logical person comes screaming out of that fact, which is, wait, how are they still in business? That's a really good question. Um, What's really interesting to me is that they actually have right now um, job openings listed on their website. They still have enough revenue to be saying we're looking to hire investigative reporters. We're looking to do um, you know, a little bit more digging on the topics that matter to us. They still are sending reporters out. Um, I was just recently at the Detroit debate and I saw reporters from Breitbart out there you know, doing their thing, scrumming with the rest of us. So it's not like they're completely destitute at this time. That's not the case at all. They've still got a lot of revenue. They've still got a lot of traffic. It's just that they're sharing that traffic with a wider number of competitors. Yeah, no, look, I know digital media and their traffic is not nearly enough to sustain that business. No way, no how, no chance. So that leads to to me an even more interesting phenomenon. That if you're in media and you're you know, a standard media operation, CNN, New York Times, etc. You have your certain source of revenue, whether it's subscription for New York Times, the cable fees that people pay for CNN and the advertising, etc. 
That's normal and it's very understandable how they make their money. And even so, most of those media companies are in trouble. I don't mean CNN and New York Times, but I certainly mean the smaller newspapers and a lot of the smaller cable channels. If you're on the left wing, God help you, there's nobody coming to the rescue. It's just whatever you got from your audience and advertise. For the right wing, if you lose 70, not only 90% of your advertising because of the boycott, but you lost 72% of your actual audience. There's no business that can sustain that over any period of time. So it's got to be right wing donors that are keeping them afloat. So what's your take on that, Lindsay? You know, I remember when I was looking into the research for this article, I saw something that Steve Bannon himself said in a film in 2018, where he said that 90% of right wing websites are going to be completely donor based going forward, and he doesn't see a path for any partisan media that isn't completely donor-based except for Fox News. Um, But even that, they lost the Mercers after what he said um, in the Michael Wolff book about Donald Trump. So they keep losing backers, but his idea, his thinking, and as someone who understands the inner workings of Breitbart, is that donors will continue to give to the conservative websites. Well, of course they will. So uh, let me explain that phenomenon to people. Uh, So look, there are people who care about issues they give to nonprofits on the left and the right. So the ones on the left are almost purely, uh, not completely, but <clears throat> Clinton Foundation. But outside of that are are largely really to help people, uh, whether it's on political issues they care about, like the environment, or just to help with cancer, etc. On the right wing, there's plenty of people who do help with cancer, the arts, and do great charity. There's also people who give to politics for selfish reasons. Because they want the tax cuts, right? Today, Bernie Sanders team put out a tweet about how the Walton family will get taxed like $147 billion under Bernie Sanders' plan just on the estate tax alone. The Koch brothers will lose about $96 billion. If you got $96 billion on the line, what difference does it make to make give 10 or 20 million to propaganda outlets like Breitbart? So, you know, Lindsay, I'm curious if the rest of the media, understands this phenomenon. Uh, like We know that the right wing is propped up, again, outside of Fox News, and I can get into that interesting example too. But is completely backed up by right wing billionaires for the sole purpose of propaganda. Does, I, I still feel like that a lot of the media is in total denial over that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to come to terms with that, especially I think for people on the left side who, like you've said, struggle to get that sort of same amount of donation, that same amount of um, rah-rah on the other side. And I think also people in corporate media, the people who spend a lot of their time reporting on these things, um, who look at these things, that's not something that makes a lot of sense to them either. I've worked in corporate media too, and the idea of being funded by a donor, being beholden to a donor or having an agenda-based um, content model that has something to do with the people who are funding it is kind of foreign to those people. Not entirely because there's still advertisements and they always have to be a little bit careful about what they're saying um, in any given block, given what could be coming up in the commercial after that. But it's a whole different ballgame when you're dealing with these smaller partisan places. And I think there's a huge disconnect between the left, the right, and the corporate media. Yeah, and I, I don't want people to get mistaken uh, in terms of what it means to be a donor. So if there's someone investing, so the Mercers originally invested into Breitbart, 
thinking that it would be a, a good investment, plus for in their case, propaganda. Uh, now, what was that, Lindsay? It was. Yeah, initially they had good traffic as your article points out. And so whether we agree or disagree with them, uh, they had plenty of traffic in the beginning. Uh, and which gives me gets me to Fox News. Rupert Murdoch lost about half a billion dollars on Fox News before it turned to profit. So he put in about $90 million a year that he burned for five straight years, $450 million before Fox became profitable. Now, that is really bold vision, but that was an investment. It wasn't a donation, and it paid off for him because now Fox makes billions of dollars. That's normal capitalism. But for a lot of these, especially the digital media outlets, I know digital media. There's no way they're making money, no way. I mean, you see cuts on Vice, HuffPost, you name any digital media company that has had hundreds of millions of dollars in investment and they're making cuts because they can't sustain it. And they haven't had a 72% drop in audience. They haven't had a 90% drop in revenue. And I think, Lindsay, it's important. And I wonder if there's any movement afoot at all, or, or maybe your article is the one that begins to kick it off, about some truth in advertising. So for the rest of the media to go, okay, but Breitbart is not propped up by investments. They're propped up by donors. So that's a different animal altogether. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't don't see it yet. I feel like even the the Obama administration have the daily caller in their White House press room. So (laughs) there's this disconnect between the right wing being paid to say certain things and the rest of the media doing their best with a lot of different problems and biases and perspectives, etc. Uh, but so far, I don't see that distinction. Do you see that distinction uh, that the rest of the no. media is making or no? No, I don't see that distinction in the rest of the media. And I definitely don't see that distinction in consumers. And I think it would be important, just as important, if consumers had a little bit more of an understanding of the way that the funding worked too. Yeah, absolutely. And look, if they went to a, a subscription model, for example, and there was a lot of right wing uh, people who I don't agree with that I would probably call deplorable, if you will, and they had enough money to sustain it, well, then okay, it's a free country. You write what you want, and you got people who will back you on it. But when you just have these giant donors just give you money for propaganda for tax cuts, people should at least know what your motivation is. Um, so, Lindsay, with a really interesting and important article. Uh, about Breitbart in this context. Uh, Everybody check it out at The Wrap, and obviously we'll have a link down to it uh, if you're watching this later on YouTube or Facebook. Uh, Lindsay Ellison, thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, guys. When we come back, uh, I'm gonna talk to a great writer about Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Is she the tactical genius that the rest of the media makes her out to be, or is there a case to be made for the opposite? When we return. All right, back on a Young Turks. Another great guest for you guys. Do anything but great guests? Are you kidding me? All right. Joining me now is Elizabeth Spires. She's the founder of the Insurrection. She also wrote the article Beyond Pelosi: Why Impeachment Can't Penetrate the Cult of DC Savvy for the New Republic. Elizabeth, welcome to the Young Turks. Thank you for having me. No problem. Look, um, I'll be honest, loved your article. 
loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Because uh, it was uh, riddled with facts, uh, which is usually good for an article, a news article. Uh, but uh, let's start with the original premise. So uh, conventional wisdom in Washington is that uh, Nancy Pelosi is a brilliant tactician. And what would the Democratic Party do without her? Um, you seem to have countered that. So what's, what's your take on what the veracity of that conventional wisdom? Well, I mean, the funny thing is that I think generally speaking, Pelosi is a brilliant tactician. But I, I think we almost go so far in giving her the benefit of the doubt in that respect that she can say things that are that are essentially evidenceless. And, and we go a little bit too far in assuming that she has you know, evidence to back it up. And as I said in the article, you know, I, I've seen this before. I was a financial reporter for a long time. And I remember people giving Alan Greenspan the same benefit of the doubt going into the credit crisis. Uh, and it wasn't based on some uh, silly notion that he's not intelligent or that he didn't uh, have some grander strategy. But I, I think there was too little attempt to hold him accountable and really ask for an explicit rationale. And I feel like I'm seeing the same thing with Pelosi when it comes to impeachment. Yeah, so look, uh, funny enough, uh, as tough as your article was on Pelosi on that issue, um, I, I think Pelosi, I'm much tougher on Pelosi. I think Pelosi is not even a good tactician, let alone a brilliant one. Uh, I think she couldn't tactician her way out of a wet paper bag. Uh, but anyways, Get to that You're not the first person who's, who said that to me. Um, and, and you said I am or I'm not the first you're person? You're not, no, okay, you're not. Yeah, yeah, well, good. I used to be the only person saying it, so I'm glad others are now beginning to say that. In fact, let me ask you about that as a bridge to the impeachment talk. Sure. The fact that a lot of people now believe that she's bungled the impeachment situation, has that finally begun to get people to question, wait a minute, were we right all along about how Great she is. Well, I, I think to some extent it, it that has happened because what's what's going to happen is that if impeachment doesn't happen because, among other things, Nancy Pelosi was standing in the way of it, and we have these long-term downstream consequences that we all I think think are absolutely going to be there if no one holds Trump accountable, that's really going to be her legacy. It won't be how smart we thought she was eight years ago. Uh, and, and I think that's partly that's that's something the party is wrestling with. I think I hope that she's wrestling with it. Uh, and and we're watching other people having to sort of step in and and take the reins where she's not displaying leadership on this issue. Okay. Again, one last thing before we go to the evidence on on impeachment and mm -hmm. uh, and how she might not be playing that right to say the least. Uh, the other day, Jerry Nadler came out and said, no, 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 what we're doing in the House is an impeachment inquiry. It's official, it's real. But most people didn't believe him. <laughs> so having studied this, what's your take? Are they doing an impeachment inquiry I mean, or aren't they? In, in my opinion, it's better than nothing because it, it, it could go into an inquiry. Uh, it's certainly better than what we've been dealing with for the last few months, which is Democrats sitting on their hands and, and you know not doing anything. I hope that that's not the entirety of the strategy because you don't see the party uniting behind it as if it's an impeachment inquiry. And a big reason why it's so important to go through that process is that the case needs to be made publicly and people need to understand what's happening. If people get the sense that this is another you know, behind closed doors discussion, then what's the point? 
you know, when you when you hold the president accountable, it can't be through an obscure process that you know nobody the the general public isn't party to. So I would vastly prefer that the party get on the same page about what's happening and initiate, in my opinion, initiate impeachment proceedings. This seems like a, a sort of odd hedge, and I certainly prefer it to doing nothing. But it, it's it's not um, it, it undermines. The, what would be a, a legitimate impeachment process in certain ways if it continues to happen as a quiet process that's only happening in committee and yeah. the public doesn't really understand what's what's going on. Well, look, Democrats doing nothing is not news. Uh, and them thinking it's a brilliant strategy is not news. Them making never making their own case is not news. Uh, these incompetent bumbling fools have been doing this for decades on end, if you ask me. But again, now let's get into the heart of the impeachment issue. So Nancy Pelosi makes a number of claims about why you shouldn't pursue impeachment. Let's go through them as best as we can one by one. She said that Donald, it's okay, she doesn't have to because Donald Trump is doing self impeachment. Elizabeth, does anybody have any idea what she's talking about? No, I think I think as soon as that quote came out of her mouth, you know, even even people on her team knew that it was ridiculous. Uh, there, there's no such thing as self impeachment, and and if if there were, if the idea was everything he's doing is so horrible, we don't need impeachment because people see how bad it is. Well, you know, we we people said that a couple months into the Trump administration, said it can't get any worse. Every week it does get worse. You know, Trump keeps escalating because no one's stopping him. I mean, that that's the bottom line. Until people refuse to hold him accountable with the power that Democrats now have in the House, this will continue to happen. If you think you've seen the bottom, you haven't, because there's always going to be somebody in the Trump administration who's going to come up with something that's worse than whatever we've already seen and sink to that level. So well, it's just a matter of how, how you know, deep and wide your imagination is if, if you think it can't get worse. Well, Elizabeth, in, by saying in essence that we're never going to uh, impeach him, doesn't that give, especially a dangerous guy like uh, Donald Trump, who is already inclined in this direction, basically a blank check saying, "Don't worry." I mean, you've already broken at least two very clear laws: obstruction. Yeah. There's ten instances of it in the Mueller report, and and campaign finance laws, which is a felony that your co-conspirator is in prison for today, right now. Your co-conspirator. So like people forget about that because the Democrats never mention it because they suck at their jobs and, and, and they don't know what they're doing. But anyway, like if you never bring those things up and, and, and you give Trump a blank check, isn't it saying to him, you can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it? Yeah, and, and you know, I, I actually worry about something that that's, has much longer term ramifications than that. If you think about how bad Trump is, and, and then you consider that in the context of his weaknesses, his political weaknesses, his strategic weaknesses. Then think about what would happen if you give him a free pass. And then we have another president who's like Trump, but let's let's suggest that he's more intelligent, better informed, better informed, a uh, better strategist. Um, you know, the, we could have a person who's ten times more dangerous. And if we don't hold Trump accountable, we've set a precedent that there is there is no bottom. You know, there's nothing that someone in the Oval Office can do that's so bad that if the political winds are blowing their way, won't be tolerated. And what that means is that every 
single norm that we have that holds democracy together but isn't technically a law becomes meaningless. Yeah. And frankly, you know, many of our laws become meaningless. Parts of the Constitution become meaningless. So the destruction to democracy long term is a bigger, almost a bigger concern to me than whatever happens in the next 18 months with Trump. Yeah, because it's the precedent that we're setting. Hundred percent. There's so many things she's gotten wrong that it's we gotta now pick up the speed and go getting through all the ridiculous claims. So let's start with the one you just said there, or transition to that. She says, "Well, look, it's a, it's bad politics." Well, there's two things wrong with that. Number one, they're stuck in the '90s. We can get to that in a second. But isn't this a problem when you say? Mueller says DOJ cannot indict, right or wrong, that is the opinion of the special counsel. So the only per, the only basically government organization that could do anything about the president breaking the law is the House of Representatives in, in putting together impeachment. So yeah. in essence, Pelosi's saying, I don't care what the law is. I don't care what my responsibility is as Speaker of the House. I'm just gonna play politics. How is that not brazen? Well, I think it's brazen, but you know, as I mentioned in the article, I also think it's a bad political calculation. You know, I, I work as a political strategist in my day job, and, and I just don't see the potential ramifications that she's articulating on the ground. You know, I, th- I think there's a lot of fear mongering around what happens if we go through the impeachment process and the Senate fails to convict, which, which I believe, you know, they won't. But, but in my view, that's not the point of it. Um, so when Pelosi articulates in very vague terms what she thinks the 2020 consequences are, I just don't see the the evidence behind it. You know, I, I don't see any evidence that, for instance, even if Democrats are not wholeheartedly in favor of impeachment, which by the way, they are, uh, but even if the whole country isn't wholeheartedly in favor of impeachment, which we've never begun impeachment investigations around a, you know, a majority sentiment that they should definitely happen. That didn't happen with Nixon, didn't happen with Clinton. Uh, so she's sort of manufacturing a scenario that has never existed in history, where you need un- unanimous sentiment that the president should be impeached before you consider, you know, beginning an impeachment proceeding. And it, you know, it doesn't have any historical precedent. There's no, not even any data. If, if you if if you were going to make the argument that Pelosi and and Dem leadership are just being pragmatic. You know, uh, you, you still have to have some evidence to back that up. You you have to make a case that when we get to 2020, there would be some big backlash that would affect, uh, you know, democratic yeah. turnout. It would affect motivation, and it would rally, you know, the Trump base. Which I I don't buy that either. Right? Yeah. Family full of Trump voters in Alabama. Um, yeah. So I, I don't see them becoming more politically engaged than they are. Of course uh, not. Of course not. It's a bo- Democrats it's, are going after Trump. It's total excuses. Uh, well, look, Washington is a fact-free zone, and and establishment Democrats have their own alternative facts. That's why I was stunned to read your article. Like this has actual verifiable facts. Uh, it's very unlike the rest of the media. So uh, along those lines, they say, well, you know, when the the Republicans did an unjust impeachment of Bill Clinton, it wound up hurting them. First of all, you're just comparing. All of Donald Trump's crimes to an unjust impeachment, you moron. That is a terrible yeah. political strategy, and and also not true. And second of all, your facts are wrong. Guess who yeah. won the presidential election after the Republicans impeached Bill Clinton? 
Oh, right, the Republicans. Yeah. I mean, so Elizabeth, I mean, this is kind of a funny question, but when you walk around Washington, D.C., or you talk to other reporters, how can they not see how counterfactual every one of these propositions are? Well, I, I think there's there's a weakness both in media and, and by the way, in political establishment where people are very um, reticent or, or more to the point, they're not really conditioned to think very long term about these things at all. Uh, political consultants are geared to think toward the next cycle uh, as a matter of course. And, and you know, they have heavy incentive to do that. You know, journalists do that too, uh, not intentionally, I don't think, but it's also particularly for political reporters who were in the trenches in the last cycle. It's hard for them not to experience the kind of cognitive bias where everything in this cycle looks like whatever they saw in the last cycle. Um, and some of it's just, you know, there, there's not a lot of um, impetus or incentive for people to really look longitudinally at these things and how they happen. You know, right. I would argue that if we have to compare the current situation to a prior impeachment, Nixon's a better um, analog. And if you look at support for Nixon's impeachment in the beginning, it was far lower than support for impeaching Trump right now. So yeah. if you have to go back and look at precedent, then there is a precedent. And it would seem to indicate that we should begin impeachment proceedings immediately. This should not be a political calculation. I'm dead set against considering this as a political calculation. But if you were to look at it as a political calculation, the Democrats impeach Nixon. Guess who won the next election? Yeah. Democrats. So all facts point to impeachment, but Nancy Pelosi likes that donor money. And so look, I can go on and on. She said that if they, the Senate doesn't convict him, that he can't be prosecuted afterwards. Total lie, not remotely true, a preposterous thing to say. Uh, and and she implicitly basically uh, is is approving of Donald Trump's actions. So let me, I keep wanting to ask you more questions. Yeah. This. And like, does she understand, do the Democratic establishment, do they understand at all that when they don't pursue Donald Trump and Trump says, see, I was exonerated, it looks like the Democrats are agreeing with him. I think there, there's a funny level of naivete about it. You know, there, there's this idea, and we see this even with the you know establishment Democrats who are running for office. When Joe Biden gets up and says, uh, "Well, you know, things would be different if Trump was out of office. Republicans would start acting in good faith." I don't see any evidence for that being true, and and certainly. I would imagine that when you know she has a moment to herself to think Nancy Pelosi doesn't think that's true. Uh, so th there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance that's politically advantageous. You know, I said in the column I thought that, and this is speculation on my part, but that part of the reason why Pelosi doesn't want to pursue impeachment is because it shifts risk to the 2020 candidates. You know, it takes some of the pressure off of leadership if things don't go in the right direction. Uh, mm -hmm. But, that, but that's, that's risky in and of itself, especially when you consider the downside of not holding Trump accountable. Uh, yeah. and, and there's this sort of weird reticence to not consider even the political cost of doing it. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. I, I, I can make an argument for impeachment entirely you know, on a moral basis and, and on a you know, rule of law basis. Uh, but, but I also think that there's a real argument to be made on a Political basis. If, if you're going to be a complete nihilist and and you know solely make this decision based on a political calculation, 
Yeah. I don't find the logic persuasive that this is even a good political decision. Not remotely, not 1% as usual bumbling fools. But I gotta end on this. Look, your article brought up two points that nobody else does. One is this cowardice on the part of Pelosi, you didn't say that, I did. Uh, saying, well, look, if there's some if Biden or some other candidate loses, we blame it on them. But if I do impeachment and our candidate loses, then people blame it on me, and so my personal glory will be diminished. Yeah, that is so grating on the nerves, and and other than cowardice, it shows incredible selfishness. Doesn't care about the Democratic Party, doesn't care about this country at all, etc. But you also brought up a second point that no one else does. She said it. She said. Donald Trump is good for raising money. Yeah. Uh, so her she makes more money and that is her only source of power. It's certainly not brilliance and it not any, certainly not defeating Republicans. I mean, legislatively she almost never wins. Uh, so, but she has a ton of corrupt money uh, backing her. So she says, hey, look, I can raise more donor money if uh, Trump's in office. Isn't that a, a huge part of a real motivation as to why she's not doing impeachment? I think that's a piece of it, but I also think it's not even, um, I would say it's not even as directly bad faith as that. It's, it's a, this is a strategy that has worked for her before, and she can't imagine being successful at it without having that kind of villain on the other side of it. But again, even that doesn't make sense to me on a pragmatic basis. It's not like you can't raise money off of a horrible person in office in the middle of an impeachment proceeding. Because this isn't the only election, this isn't the only battle we have to fight. You know, we right now we have a majority in the House and pretty much nowhere else. And Trump is busy packing the judiciary. I mean, there are plenty of fundraising opportunities. So again, if we're just gonna even think like nihilists, you know, there's no lack of fundraising opportunities uh, if impeachment proceedings begin. Um, so I think of it more as a failure of the imagination in two senses. One is that they, they really can't conceive of the long run consequences of not impeaching him, and many of which can be apocalyptic for democracy. And then the second one is that, you know, if they view this as the only viable strategy, what does that say about uh, their tactical and strategic brilliance? Um, surely there are other things in the arsenal, particularly with a, a president as bad as Trump. And with it, it, as many you know, long run systemic things that he's done to create damage to our democracy and our, to, to our country. Um, there should be more than one fundraising tool in the arsenal. Absolutely. All right, if you're watching this later on YouTube or Facebook, we're gonna have two links for you down in the description box you can click on. TYT.com slash impeach. Let's go, let's go, let's go, okay? And more importantly in this case, Elizabeth Spires' wonderful article in the New Republic. Thank you. So please click on it, check it out, chock full of actual facts. So it's absolutely refreshing to read. And Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us on The Young Turks. Thank you. All right, okay, when we come back for the members, we're gonna talk about some lighter stuff, but God knows, you know, once we get rolling in, the, in what we call the post game, the last half hour of the Young Turks, uh, anything can happen. Um, so, uh, but we are going to start talking about uh, the vacation that I took recently and uh, some cutesy moments with my kids, etc. So, on the lighter side of things, tyt.com/slash/join to become a member and get the last half hour of the Young Turks. We'll see you there. <laughs> 